Good morning. Can you hear me? Are we coming through on the... We should be. One, two, one, two. I think I'll go to the lectern then. Is it coming through? Okay. Yes, it is. We're, we're fine. Just press the stop on the CD player. There we go. A few technical hitches to start the day, but we're, we're on track. Welcome to worship here in Bigger this morning. And thank you to everyone who has welcomed Jane and I back from our holiday in Sutherland. We had a good time, though the weather wasn't that great. But I think this week we're going to have wonderful weather. We're into summer now. This morning we celebrate communion together. So if you're watching at home, you might want to prepare your bread and wine or juice for after the sermon. And I trust that everyone else here has been served already and you're ready to take communion together. In terms of this pandemic, things are rapidly changing, not before time. We received news on Friday that we can get back to singing in church on the 7th of June. That's a Monday, so it'll have to wait till the next Sunday, which is the, which is the 13th. We'll still have to wear masks, and we'll still have to keep two meters apart, but we will be able to sing. But for now, those of us here in the building are not able to, but if you're at home, then please do sing along. And as Cameron has said for the last two Sundays, for those at home or those here in the church, no one is going to stop us from singing in our hearts so we stand for our first hymn, which is the hymn, 10,000 Reasons.
Let's pray together as we approach God. Yes, Father, there are 10,000 and more reasons to praise you. In this past week, we have been blessed, each and every one of us, in so many, many ways. You have sustained our lives. You've provided for our needs. You've saved us from sticky situations, given us wisdom and hope. And when we haven't had these, you've given us others, friends and family, to have them for us. You've forgiven us and picked us up when we have fallen. We worship you for who you are, our great, loving, faithful, gracious, and ever-present God. We are so grateful for all that you do for us and all that you are growing in us and among us in our church family. And so as we approach you in worship this morning, we pray with all those who would follow you. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. And Joy Davis is going to come and bring us our gospel reading this morning. Our reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 23, and we shall continue on to the second <coughs> verse of chapter 5. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and illness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and the people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Thanks be to God. Amen. It's the time when we usually talk to the children, and we've only got one young person in church this morning, but there, I think there's some watching online. This morning we're going to start a, a series on the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is a famous passage in three chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7. Sermon on the Mount has a special place in, in my heart. 
It's the first bit of the Bible that I ever read for myself and memorized. When I was 10, I was living with my family in Korea. And my mom and my dad gave me for my birthday a Bible. And it was my first grown-up Bible. Here's a, a, a picture of it. It was my first grown-up Bible. And at that point, this new English Bible was just two years off the press. It had study notes, and it even had a section in it that we Protestants don't usually read called the Apocrypha. I was excited to get this big, new, shiny adult book. But it was so big, I didn't know where to start reading it. And I think a lot of people, when they're given a Bible, sometimes that's very daunting. And they might appreciate the gift, that big, new, shiny book, and maybe just put it on the shelf. My mom told me that it would be best to start in the New Testament. And so I opened to the New Testament, to the first book in the New Testament, which is the Gospel of Matthew, and I began to read. Now, the first ch chapter in Matthew, I don't know if you've read it, but it is a bit boring, and it could put you off from the, the outset because it's full of names, names that are very difficult to pronounce. It's a genealogy, so it's telling us who Jesus' parents and parents' parents were. But then in chapter 2, it goes on, well, the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2, it goes on to tell the Christmas story, a story that I, as a child, knew because I had been in nativity plays and I had experienced 10 Christmases by then and I had seen movies about the Christmas story. It moves on from there to get a bit more exciting when we're introduced to this man named John, John the Baptist. And Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist in the River Jordan. I knew something about baptism because at that point, two years before, I had been baptized together with my dad. And then it moves on to chapter 4, and Jesus is tempted in the wilderness by the devil. That was exciting, although a bit scary. I don't know about you, but I'm not too excited about devils and demons. But then in chapter 5, Jesus begins to teach. This is where we get to the Sermon on the Mount. And what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, I found captivating. At 10, I have to admit, I didn't really understand a lot of the Sermon on the Mount. There's still a lot I don't understand. But I knew that what Jesus was saying to hear was really, really important. And so it was the first bit of the Bible that I ever memorized. Now, I've gone on to read the rest of the Bible. I imagine I've read it several times now. There's still a lot that I do not understand. But I can say that the gift of my first grown-up Bible was one of, if not the best gift that I ever got. 
So thank you, Mom. Mom's watching from America. Thank you for one of the best gifts I ever got. Do you have a grown-up Bible yet? You do? Okay, that's great. I know a lot of kids have children's Bibles, and, and they're really good. They have pictures that illustrate, and they're a lot easier to understand than the grown-up version. But can I encourage kids that when you're ready, and when mom and dad think that it is time, that you get a shiny new grown-up Bible and begin to read it. Maybe begin, like I did, with one of the Gospels. Maybe the Gospel of Matthew. Reading the Bible is the best way that we can meet Jesus. And that's the best thing in life. In meeting him, our lives are changed for the better. We'll never be the same after meeting him. Our next song is a song that speaks of the love of God in sending us Jesus. It's the song, What Love My God. And let's stand for this.
please be seated. As we turn to reflect on God's word, let's pray together. Lord, your word is deep and rich, sometimes very confusing, sometimes very, very challenging, and often very comforting. Lord, we need your spirit to apply this book to our lives. And so we ask you now, come, Lord Spirit, inspire us as we think about these words that we have had read to us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, this Sunday we start a new series on what is traditionally known as the Sermon on the Mount. The passage of Scripture is a block of Jesus' teaching that comes in Matthew's Gospel quite near the beginning of his ministry. It comes after his baptism, his temptation, his calling of four disciples, his preaching to and the healing of crowds of people from all over. I wonder what your history with the Sermon on the Mount is. You've heard about mine. Certainly in the history of our country, there was a time when everyone would have at least recognized chapter 5, verse 13, what has come to be known as the Beatitudes that begin with the words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Or chapter 6, verses 9 to 13, what we've prayed just earlier, what's come to be known as the Lord's Prayer. Or phrases like, love your enemies, or do not judge lest ye be judged. It used to be, and I'm not so sure this is the case so much anymore, but folks who were not affiliated to any church, when asked if they were Christians, would, would often say, sure I am. I don't go to church. I just follow the Sermon on the Mount. Have you heard anyone say that? There's a problem with over-familiarity with things. And that statement just highlights the problem of over-familiarity with the Sermon on the Mount. Looking more deeply into the Sermon on the Mount, I find it hard to believe that anyone could ever truthfully say, I follow it. For one thing, there are bits that are really, really hard to understand. And for another, there are bits that are almost impossible to just follow. No, whether we are regular churchgoers or not, we aren't very good at following the teachings of Jesus, we have to admit. One Jewish rabbi who wrote on the teachings of Jesus said, Christians have spent 2,000 years trying to evade the clear teachings of their rabbi Jesus, whom they purport to follow. It's my hope, however, that through the course of this series, we'll be able to understand 
the vital teaching of Jesus found here in the Sermon on the Mount. And maybe, just maybe, together with the help of God's Holy Spirit, we can follow it. If not wholly, at least more than we have ever done before. In the true sense of what it means to follow both understanding and actually obeying what is written there. To understand this passage, I think it would be helpful at the outset to ask some basic, basic questions about it. Questions we often fail to ask because of our over-familiarity with the Sermon on the Mount. The first question is, what is it? What is this passage all about? Is it a sermon? Are the impossible things in this sermon meant to be things that we actually do, or are they just things that we're meant to think about? The second question is, what is the context of the Sermon on the Mount? What is the context of this teaching? Where does it fit in with a big story about God and his world? And where does it fit in with the story of Jesus and the good news of salvation that he brings, which is a very important part of that bigger story? And where does the Sermon on the Mount fit in with Matthew's account of that good news about Jesus? And the third question is, who was and is the Sermon on the Mount aimed at? Who was the Sermon on the Mount for? Was it for that crowd that came to find Jesus from all over the, the region? Was it for the disciples in Jesus' day? Is the Sermon on the Mount for you and me, or was it only for them way back then? Our answers to these questions will become clearer as we go along, but I think they're important to at least address them here at the outset so as to help us to know what we're dealing with before we even begin to deal with it. So to the first question, what is it? In our passage, Jesus climbs a hill and he sits down. Jesus sits down not to rest, but to teach, because that is how people in Jesus' day taught, not standing up, not in a pulpit, but sitting down. Sermon on the Mount, I think, is a little bit of a misnomer. This was no 10 to 20-minute sermon, at least in my mind. What Matthew gives us here in chapters 5, 6, and 7 could have been delivered in 10 minutes. If you read the passage, these three chapters, very slowly, it will take you about 10 minutes to deliver or read. But indications are that Matthew is not giving us a verbatim account of what was taught that day. But he's giving us more a, a summary of all that Jesus taught throughout his ministry. Jesus was teaching, and Jesus' teaching usually involved dialogue and questions and answers. 
That was Jesus' way. We, we know it from other passages in the Gospels where Jesus, is, Jesus teaches. The dialogue and the questions and answers aren't recorded here in Matthew's Gospel in the Sermon on the Mount, but we might assume they were part and parcel of this event on the mountain that day. And furthermore, Matthew isn't the only one who records this block of teaching, this Sermon on the Mount. Luke, in his Gospel, does too, there in Luke chapter 6. And what Luke records is significantly different to what Matthew recounts. What Luke records isn't contradictory to Matthew, but it is different. And I believe it's complementary. So in the course of this series, I hope that we get a chance to look at Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount so that we can compare it with what we see here in Matthew. So as to get an even clearer picture of what Jesus was on about as he taught, not just here on the mountain, but everywhere. Jesus wasn't giving a sermon, a 10-minute sermon. What he was giving us here was radical, life-changing teaching. One commentator said that this was Jesus' boot camp for his disciples. Just look at the end, chapter 7, verse 28, and how people responded to this event, these words of Jesus. There it says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. How did they respond? They were amazed. That word in Greek is quite a strong word. It can also mean that they were shocked or they were panic-stricken. When was the last time you had a sermon when you were panic-stricken? That's not the kind of reaction you expect from a normal Sunday morning sermon, is it? This was something the likes of which the crowd that day had never heard before. And so they were amazed. They were shocked. No, this was no ordinary sermon. It was radical teaching. It was teaching that Jesus expected people not just to listen to, but to act on. It wasn't an academic exercise. It wasn't just some nice words that you could take or leave. It wasn't a thought for the day on BBC Radio 4 that you listen to and you think, oh, that's a nice thought, and you just move on. It wasn't like that. It was teaching that challenged people to change Challenge them to change not just their behavior, but their very hearts. And to hammer home the fact that this was no ordinary sermon, at the end, Jesus gives the solemn warning of the two builders. That story of a foolish builder who builds on sand compared to a wise one who builds with a good foundation on solid ground. And Jesus says... Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man built his house on sand. Here is radical teaching. This is what we have, radical teaching that is to be obeyed. Our second question, what was the context? Where does this fit in to the big story? Well, this teaching comes after a proclamation of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Look back in chapters 3, verse 17, and chapter 4, 17. At Jesus' baptism, a voice from heaven declares, This is my Son, whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. And then when Jesus returns from the wilderness, he begins to proclaim, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. This is the context. Jesus taught with authority, it says in 729. It is quite clear from the language that Jesus uses throughout the sermon that Jesus is speaking with a unique voice from God. Jesus speaks here as God, not just a good teacher, but as God made flesh. The larger context of the Sermon on the Mount, therefore, is that the long-awaited time when God would come to be king. Remember, this is an announcement of the kingdom of God. That long-awaited time has come. It has finally arrived in Jesus with the king. And in this teaching, Jesus is showing what it looks like for folks to live in the kingdom of God. But what about the story of Matthew? What, how does this passage fit into the context of Matthew's gospel? Matthew's gospel, we are told by scholars, is unlike some of the others, some of the other gospels. It is one that was written particularly for Jewish people for a Jewish audience. We see that in the fact that Matthew begins his gospel with that genealogy, that very difficult passage with all those names at the beginning. And that's a typical way for Jewish people to introduce someone, to let you know who their kin were, to let you know who Jesus is. We also see Matthew's Jewishness in the fact that he keeps saying that this or that event was to fulfill certain passages of the Hebrew Bible, which Matthew quotes. But another way that Matthew shows Jesus' Jewishness is the way that he portrays Jesus as a new and better Moses. Take a look at this slide. Like Moses and Moses' people, Jesus uniquely in Matthew's gospel goes to live in exile in Egypt. We're not told that fact in any of the other gospels. And after Egypt, like Moses and like the children of Israel, Jesus passes through water. And Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River, just as Moses and his people went through the Red Sea. 
This is an exodus journey that Jesus is on as much as Moses was. And after his baptism, Jesus spends time in the wilderness and is tempted just as the children of Israel were in the wilderness and grumbled and were tempted. They gave in. Jesus did not. And then we come to our passage, this passage, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus goes up a mountain and speaks of the law of God, the Torah. You remember Moses doing that, don't you? On Mount Sinai, Moses receives the tablets of the law of God and gives them to God's people. You see the correlation here that Matthew is drawing out. Later on, we, when we get to the third section of the Sermon on the Mount, we'll look at how Jesus' teaching is related to the commandments that Moses gave to Israel. And that's a fascinating um, bit of the Sermon on the Mount. Mind-blowing, actually. But we'll have to wait to get there. And so we come to our third question. Who was the Sermon on the Mount aimed at? Who is the Sermon on the Mount for? It says there in Matthew 4, 25, in our passage this morning. I think we've lost that bit there. If you want to click again, that might come up. There we go. It says, large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Who is them here whom Jesus began to teach? Who is the them? Is it the large crowds, or is it the disciples? The text, I think, is a bit ambiguous here. And I think it's ambiguous for a reason. I believe Jesus was delivering this word to everyone, to everyone there that day. They were all welcome to hear Jesus' teaching. Now, I'm one who likes to picture things. You know that. And as, as I read this passage, I get a picture of this event in my mind. I... I I'm going to put it on the screen graphically, but I, but I get a, a, a better picture with people standing around. I like to draw cartoons, as you know, Stephanie. And uh, I, I, if I had had time this last week, which I didn't, I would have drawn a cartoon of this. This event in my mind is, is like this. There is Jesus sitting in the middle, middle sitting in the center. You see, sometimes you see pictures of this. You can troll on the internet and find some pictures. Jesus sitting on a rock. I imagine Jesus sitting on the ground with the people. He's not putting himself any higher than anyone else here. He's there in the center, and the four dis disciples whom he has called, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, are sitting at his feet. These are those these disciples are those who had left their nets and their families and their livelihood sitting at Jesus' feet. We hear that 
in the story of Martha and Mary, don't we? Martha, too, is a disciple at Jesus' feet. This is a posture of discipleship. Sitting at the feet of the master, that is what disciples do. Like in a marriage, a true disciple forsakes all others and commits to learning and to being shaped by their one master. Sitting at the feet of the master, they ask questions. They can ask questions because they're right there. They can see the expressions on the face of their master, and they can hear more clearly what he is saying because they are sitting at his feet. But in the picture that the text paints for us, there are others there besides, besides those at the feet of Jesus. There was a large crowd that followed him, the text tell us. And following, it's obvious, can mean many different things. Some of those following in the crowd, I imagine, even though, though they weren't called in the same way that, that the four disciples were, were equally committed to Jesus. They were at his feet. But there were others that day, too. There were the ones who were attracted to Jesus, but weren't necessarily sitting at his feet. And I imagine them sitting over there on a picnic rug a little ways away. These folks, they're still listening, but... They're not so sure they want to do the buy-in with this rabbi, Jesus. Maybe they'd give it a try, but just as likely they will move on to another rabbi or go back to fishing or, or golfing or whatever it is they were more used to doing. And there were others, yet others in the crowd who were there that day. And these folks were not sitting at all, but they were decidedly standing. A picture of some of them, most of them with their arms crossed. These were the ones who were suspicious of Jesus. Maybe they were offended by some of the things that he said. And to be honest, some of the things Jesus said were offensive. His teaching certainly wasn't like the teaching they, they had ever heard from their own teachers. It was often challenging and critical of what they had come to know and what they had come to believe. It was countercultural. Someone described it as, as coming to live in Britain and driving on the right side of the road instead of the left. That's going to get you into conflict and collision, isn't it? Jesus' way of living in the kingdom is a bit like that. Like the seed in Jesus' parable of the sower, his words had different effects upon the different people that heard them in the crowd that day. Dare I suggest... His words will have different effects on us as we look at these words over the weeks that we will study them. 
the effect that they have will depend on where we are in this picture. It will depend on the posture of our hearts and what we understand about what is going on here. Can I invite you over the next number of weeks, wherever you are sitting or standing in the crowd, to listen to Jesus. We come here not to listen to me and not to listen to my interpretation, but we come to listen to our rabbi, Jesus. Maybe if you are standing, maybe if you're one of those with your arms crossed and suspicious, over these weeks you might find yourself at a place where you can maybe sit. And maybe if you're on the picnic rug, you're not so sure. You're attracted, but you're not so sure. Maybe you'll find yourself inching forward to listen just a little bit more intently. Maybe if you're already at Jesus' feet, you will understand that you're not there yet. And you'll understand his words in a way that you will never, maybe never have grasped before. Though you may have heard these words many times, can I ask you to hear them afresh? They may excite you. They may confuse you. I think they will certainly confuse you. They may make you mad. They may make you sad. But know that whatever effect that these words have on you, they are the words of the one God, the God of the universe who has humbly come to you and who speaks to you in these words because he loves you. He's speaking because he wants the best for you. The one who speaks these words is the same Jesus who would not, who would not just teach these words, but he's the one Jesus who would live them out in the rest of the Gospels and the one who would go to the cross to show us just how much he does love us and just how much he desires that we should be people who live forever in his kingdom that is coming. Let's spend a few moments now in silence as the music plays. And in our hearts, let's speak to Jesus. Jesus who longs to be at the center. Jesus who wants us at his feet. He wants us there because he wants to be able to touch us and teach us. Let's spend some moments and tell him that we are willing to hear what he has to say. Tell him that we want to sit at his feet. Tell him that we want to set aside our reservations and our preconceived ideas, our preoccupations, so that we can hear his voice. We want him. We need him. 
to change us into the people that he desires us to be. Let's listen to the song, Jesus Be the Center. That day on the mountain, the disciples, of course, were the closest in proximity to Jesus. And like most of us, they were committed to following him. But that didn't mean that they never messed up. Following Jesus is hard. We're going to see that as we dive into the Sermon on the Mount. I like what Dallas Willard says about the journey of discipleship. Put that slide up there. He says the process is like this. Decide to live as a student of Jesus. Decide to sit at his feet and begin to obey his teaching. And number three, observe why you fail. Because as sure as night follows day, you are going to fail. 
And then four, and most importantly, relying on his love and by the power of the spirit he gives you, get back up and let his spirit guide you in doing what will remove the causes of your failure. In the life of, dis of a disciple, failure is not the enemy. Mistakes, even massive, blundering, hurtful mistakes, are not going to throw us off course. Nothing, nothing is beyond the reach of the forgiveness brought to us by the blood of Jesus. But what will throw us off course is not acknowledging our mistakes and not learning from them. When we come to the table for communion, we acknowledge that we are fallible, and that we are broken human beings. When we use the full liturgy, we say, we have sinned and we are not worthy even to gather up the crumbs from the Lord's table. But in the same breath, we acknowledge God's overwhelming love and grace towards us. That love and grace that was just displayed most clearly on the cross of Christ. After having fallen, it is that grace that gives us the courage and the hope to get back up again and to continue on this journey with Jesus together with his people, our family, the church. And so, this table is open to all who would come and eat with Jesus and his family. If you're a visitor to our church and you love and you trust the Lord Jesus, you are welcome to join us here for this special meal. Now, we're going to do things a bit differently because of the pandemic when it comes time to eat the bread. Since no one is serving us, we will eat at the same time. Now, serving is important, and that's a great symbol, and I love it when our elders serve God's people, that's wonderful, but we're not able to do that at the moment. We serve in other ways, though. But when we, we're going to eat the bread and drink the wine together, and that is a beautiful symbol as well. It symbol, symbolizes that we are all one. So let's hear the words of institution of the Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul writes in his first letter to the Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
Let us pray. Gracious God, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and upon these your gifts of bread and wine. The bread we break and the cup we bless may be the communion of the body and the blood of Christ. By your spirit, Lord, make us one with all who share this feast, united in love and ministry in every age and in every place. For we pray in and through our one Lord and one Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The things of God for the people of God. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Happy are those who find refuge in him. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and after giving thanks to God, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And we eat together. same way he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins and we drink together Every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the saving death of the risen Lord until he comes. Now, I'll leave you to share the peace with one another afterwards. We would usually get up and and share peace with one another, but with the restrictions, we're not allowed to do that. Please do share peace with people who are not here as well, maybe on the telephone, or on Facebook, or whatever social media you use. And you can actually give people hugs nowadays. I hope that doesn't come back to to bite me, but I think the regulation is that we can hug each other. But let me share God's peace with you now. The peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for all you give us, for the love that you gave us in Jesus, for your word that sustains us, and for the promise of your eternal kingdom. There is nothing that we can do to repay the great debt that we owe you. But in your word, you say the sacrifice that you accept is a broken and a contrite heart. So that is what we bring to you. Accept the gifts we offer 
and use us to be part of what you are doing to bring your kingdom here and bigger and throughout the world. We bring before you now our needs and the needs of our world, knowing that you graciously hear us and you promise to answer when we call. We pray for our wider world, especially for countries devastated by poverty and rocked by war, political unrest, and injustice. God of justice, Prince of Peace, come and establish your reign of love in our world even now. And with the World Council of Churches, we remember today before you the nations of the Indian Ocean Islands, the Comoros Islands, Madagascar, the Maldives, Mauritius, and the Seychelles. We pray for the churches in these countries that they will grow strong in faith and know the leading of your spirit as they reach out in love to the communities around them. And closer to home, we pray for folks in hospital. And we remember, especially this morning, Grace and Betty and Mike and Marjorie. Lord, bring your healing, grant your peace. And may our brother and sisters be salt and light to the other patients and the staff in the places where they are being cared for. We pray for the staff and residents in our care homes. Thank you that restrictions are easing and family and friends are able now to visit and residents are allowed to venture out. We pray for continued safety and we pray for renewed energy for the staff. And finally, Lord, we pray for ourselves. Help us to build our lives upon the rock of your word so that when the storm winds blow, we will with your strength stand firm. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our final hymn is a new one. It's, it's great during lockdown because we can introduce new songs because you don't have to struggle to sing them. And hopefully, by the time we've heard them a few times, we'll be able to sing when we are permitted. This is a song called Christ, Our Hope in Life and Death. It is based on the Heidelberg Catechism. That's the catechism that Ruthie and I and some of the other kids have been going through on Zoom. It's a, an adapted version for children's work. Uh, Christ, Our Hope in Life and Death. Let's listen.
Can you please stand? Isaiah prophesied 700 years beforehand, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. Brothers and sisters, these are the days that Isaiah envisioned. Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, rest and remain with us evermore. Amen. You may be seated. 